you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Do you want to know how making point of care ultrasound AI ready is actually changing the primary care delivery across the entire state of British Columbia in Canada? Then keep on listening to this episode of AI Ready Healthcare. So, welcome to the sixth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I am your host Anirban. It's a typical rainy November evening here in Darmstadt, but I am really excited to talk to Professor Purang Abul Masumi. Purang is a Canada Research Chair on Biomedical Engineering and a professor in the University of British Columbia. Within Mikhai community, he is very well known for his research on ultrasound imaging. Purang won numerous awards and honors. Some highlights, I guess, would be the 2020 Mikhai Fellow, uh, winning the Killiam Faculty Research Prize within the UBC system. But I guess what is really striking for Purang is that if you meet him in person, despite all these honors and awards, he's a very humble person, really, when you are on one on one with him. So I'm really, really honored that you are here. We have you here, Purang, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Anirban. Really appreciate it. I mean, this is a great honor to be invited to, to this uh, podcast series and uh, happy to contribute. Wonderful. So I guess our tradition always is the becoming, how the journey was uh, from your early days to the current researcher, the professor that you are. So thank you, Anirban, for uh, asking this question. It's actually an interesting uh, journey in some way because many pieces of the journey that I went through kind of became different pieces of a puzzle that later on uh, led to some of the key contributions that my team has made. I uh, obtained my uh, undergraduate in electronics engineering at Sharif University of Technology in Tehran, Iran. And then uh, for uh, master's studies, I chose to go to biomedical engineering. At the time, my uh, master's thesis was on neural networks. And uh, obviously, in uh, mid-90s, there wasn't really a lot of um, use cases for such technology. But it kind of set some point of a foundation of understanding of how that technology works. When I came uh, to Canada, uh, I started my PhD at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, working with uh, Professor Tim Salkudian, who is another professor and Mikai fellow at Mikai. And um, uh, together we built a tele-ultrasound robotic system that 
the concept was to allow a sonographer using a remote joystick to manipulate a, an ultrasound transducer. But uh, the, the key part of that uh, technology was uh, ultrasound visual servoing. So for people who are familiar with control systems, visual servoing kind of is a concept that you uh, manipulate a robot to navigate, let's say, a camera, or in this case, an ultrasound system, to control uh, certain features in, in the image. And in this case was uh, ultrasound uh, imaging of the carotid artery. So we developed some tracking technologies uh, for figuring out where the carotid artery is in real time. And uh, a byproduct, I guess, of, of that research was uh, a collaboration I had with another colleague in the lab who had expertise in, in, in radar imaging, who had kind of some fundamental signal processing knowledge on how to track airplanes in a very noisy and clutter environment. So if you think about the carotid artery as a kind of a circle, uh, you wanna find its edges kind of using some conventional pre-deep learning methods. You could think about it as basically a, a pattern of speckles and you want to track uh, and identify pattern of anatomy, in this case, the vessel wall, within a very noisy environment. So we use some of the concepts from radar imaging at the time using some Kalman filtering uh, to, to identify kind of this consistent pattern. And that led to a very robust, I guess, visual servoing solution. Interestingly, after I graduated UBC back in 2002, Professor Sarkodian, along with a few students, they extended that concept and developed methods for uh, segmentation of the prostate in ultrasound data. And uh, they established a collaboration with BC Cancer Agency and they built a radiation therapy planning software that used those concepts along with some of the constraints that come with the prostate anatomy in terms of the geometry and built a solution that today still is being used by BC Cancer Agency. It has been used on, I believe, more than 4,000 patients across British Columbia. So it's now kind of considered standard of care. So kind of that initial thought, I guess, that we had back in early 2000 kind of led to a almost unplanned but a nice contribution that I would say was a great byproduct, I guess, of me, my PhD. So it was interesting at the time, you know, I... When I was graduating in 2002, I was more of an engineer. You know, I would consider myself, I had no idea really about physiology, not much about anatomy. And I remember um, Professor Gabor Fischdinger, who is now at Queen's University, interviewed me for a postdoctoral position at Johns Hopkins. And he was talking about the, the prostate all the time and, and cadavers. And uh, First of all, as a, as an engineer, you know, it was a very strange thing. You know, somebody talks about cadaver all the time. And uh, also, as somebody who had no idea about anatomy, I had no idea that only men have prostate. <laughs> so, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I applied to Queen's University. Professor Randy Ellis and, and the team of surgeons who were there, they actually had a specific need for ultrasound. 
And the main basically reason was that the team at Queens was a pioneer in developing computer assisted uh, orthopedic surgery uh, technologies. And uh, they, they, needed, they needed multiple core technologies, including, for example, image segmentation tools for segmentation of the bone and fractures from uh, CT images, registration of X-ray and, and CT images. And then the surgeons were very interested to reduce the radiation uh, exposure in the operating room. So they kind of set the mission to see, can ultrasound be used in that domain? So when I, uh, so back in 2002, I joined uh, Queens and we had a very fruitful, I guess, seven-year collaboration together. And, and in that time period, I had the opportunity to really be trained now as a biomedical engineer, going to the operating room, working with surgeons all the time, seeing what matters, uh, the workflows, what is really critical, uh, kind of a, from a clinical perspective, and also better understand the ultrasound, its interactions with anatomy, how it works uh, on bone surfaces, you know, how, how do you align modalities that are uh, fairly challenging, you know, to, to work with. And how do you co-register the anatomies? Uh, so we made some seminal contributions there in point-based registration. That uh, kind of gave me a kind of a fairly different perspective, I guess, on, on what it takes to take a technology to clinic. And then back in 2009, when the Canada Researcher Opportunity was created at UBC, and I uh, was fortunate enough to, I guess, come back to Vancouver, I came from a very different perspective than when I left Vancouver, uh, in a sense that I had a deeper understanding of how technology can work and also where it can fail in its translation to, to clinical practice. And uh, at the time, uh, there was the, when I came, the, the prostate uh, kind of segmentation work that Professor Salkudian had deployed in BC Cancer Agency had come become a routine kind of process in the in the in the BC Cancer Agency. And as a result, there were a few thousand kind of examples of prostate segmentation labels available from ultrasound data that were all annotated by physicians. And then along with another PhD student, we came up with the idea that now that there is this data set of annotated ultrasound, why can't we use some kind of a data aggregation technology. And at the time it was uh, obviously PCA, uh, you know, independent component analysis and a statistical shape models to, to extend that original work. While this was happening, and uh, I, was, uh, I was in Mikai 2013 in Tokyo, and then I had a completely random call from Vancouver and it was the, Director of Echocardiography at Vancouver General Hospital, Professor uh, Teresa Sang, who had found my name because she was searching for somebody who knew robotics and ultrasound. And that goes back now more than a decade. But why she was looking for that? Because she was being approached by a lot of the colleagues uh, from different departments in the hospital, and they were sending her ultrasound images for interpretation. And uh, most of the time, the, the, the images were very poor quality, so she couldn't really use them. And she had to then call the patient to come to the echocardiography lab 
And uh, that was creating bottleneck in the system. You know, patients had to wait and she was getting frustrated and she kind of thought, oh, why don't I sit at uh, my, my desk, have a robot that I can reboot the control and, uh, and, and get the right ultrasound images without the patient having to wait. And kind of that was her. So she had a pain from a kind of entrepreneurship point of view. You kind of, you now understand that your client that has a pain and had, I guess, a perception of a solution, potential solution that can help her. But then I started interviewing her, uh, kind of better understand what are the key pain points are. And it was also right at the time where the first early papers of the deep learning were coming out where people were showing very promising results in the computer vision field. So we started writing grants together. And, and the idea really was to how do we help physicians when they're acquiring data, um, uh, acquire higher quality data with a deep learning engine sitting on top of the data acquisition for improving the quality. And kind of uh, that kind of took me through this whole journey of, you know, where we kind of ended up today. Yeah, that's really a wonderful summary of a, I don't know, two and a half decade long journey. And of course, we are coming to your more recent walks. But what was really interesting is that for your entire career, you had a lot of, how to say, chance connections that you made at one point, and then probably a decade passed, and those chance connections then really came back and helped you in taking the next steps. So I guess sort of like basically maybe a question to ask is that what did you really do differently at those earlier years, which like compared to your peers that were not very obvious in terms of you know immediate reward but now looking back you see that you basically they served really well uh, in the long term i think the most important piece of the journey was people first i was very fortunate to have fantastic students uh, who were really the key pillars of a lot of the innovations from our group the second thing also uh, was, I guess, an amazing group of collaborators. So one thing maybe I can say for early career colleagues is to spend a lot of time going to meetings and, and conferences and socialize with people. The conferences really should be a place for better understanding what is happening in terms of the technology uh, challenges and innovations, while at the same time, you also get to know the people. And that's kind of what really I did over the past, I would say, uh, 20 years, and especially the early part of my career, going to conferences and meeting people and going out and socializing. And it was really building a trust of kind of a relationship but at more of a kind of a scientific collegial level uh, that people would trust what basically you want to contribute to the community. And those people, kind of if I think about the trajectory of all of those, the connections that I made, you really were the core of this journey. This was not possible, you know, in isolation. And uh, also... I guess the transdisciplinary nature of the work kind of forced me to, to, I guess, get out of my comfort zone 
And instead of thinking about the next algorithm, you know, with some equations and some small improvement over prior art, think more holistically that, you know what, I have now these very broad user bases uh, who could contribute or use the technology and how can I satisfy all of those requirements? One other thing I guess that happened was that back in 2015, a colleague of mine who started a spin-off from UBC from actually based on some core technology from our general robotics and control about UBC uh, under the supervision of Professor uh, Peter Lawrence, who's now retired. He came to me and he said, Frank, I've heard about this uh, deep learning. And he had a company in computer vision applications for mining. And he said, do you have students that are graduating? I want to build a team. And uh, he hired uh, three of my uh, students who had just graduated. And coincidentally, I, I ended up going for part of my sabbatical at, the, at that year to the company. So I saw this group of students taking a concept, you know, uh, at the time, really deep learning kind of was a concept through, you know, validation and productization. And then in a very kind of harsh environment, you know, mining is a very harsh environment with lots of dust and unstructured data and lots of things are happening. And that showed me kind of the potential of, of this technology and, and also how commercialization of technology impacts some of the key decision makings that you make in your technology development. So, and the timing of this was also coincidented with the, the start of the Creative Destruction Lab by another friend, uh, Professor A.J. Agrawal uh, at the University of Toronto. And then he met me and he said, you know, come to Toronto and uh, we are putting together kind of this team uh, of of investors and companies and, and looking for kind of uh, scientists who can kind of assess these technologies. And that journey along with kind of then bringing the creative destruction of also to Vancouver with another professor in business school, uh, helped me kind of look at the technology from a different, different perspective, thinking about what matters really uh, also from commercialization and impact of the technology. And then that was also at the time when our, our core ultrasound technology that I was starting to develop with Professor Teresa Sang uh, from uh, Vancouver General was kind of maturing to a kind of a certain point. So that kind of completely, I guess, changed the way I pitched these technologies to potential uh, use users in industry of this technology. And I started then talking to some of the, the, the key stakeholders in town. Uh, at the time, it was uh, Change Healthcare, which uh, develops uh, PACs under McKesson, which is a major US corporation, and uh, Clarius Mobile Health, which is a point-of-care ultrasound device manufacturer based in Vancouver, who also had hired a number of my former students to build some of their uh, core technologies. And the timing was just right, you know, kind of in, in, in some way that they saw what is possible with deep learning. That kind of then took me kind of through then the kind of launch of our, our core deep learning technology within point of care to later on to, uh, I guess, uh, to the province. Well, that's really wonderful. So I guess 
talking to people, getting out of our comfort zone as engineers, we love to live in our sort of office, but going out and talking to people give you a very different perspective about the technology and the real problems and not just about, I don't know, the performance numbers that you can get out for the one paper itself. So that that's really, I guess, is the key. I mean, you also mentioned the word already point of care ultrasound. So maybe if you can give us a little bit of a background about the potential and challenges of point of care ultrasound as a technology, and then we talk about the basically bringing deep learning into it. You know, ultrasound history always fascinates me. I mean, when I look at Wikipedia, the first kind of report of kind of ultrasound concept actually started in 1700s. It wasn't until really 1940 that was kind of uh, the concept started to get into a kind of medical domain. And, and then in 1956, which when it was invented in Glasgow uh, for obstetrics kind of use cases, it just was truly amazing that the concept uh, kind of really started from industry uh, identifying, for example, flows in, in uh, fractures, I guess, in shipmaking industry kind of made its way to, I guess, the clinical practice. But then it was until 1970s, which kind of the concept of, I guess, portable ultrasound was invented. And then later, there kind of companies like that became then Sonosite and other kind of uh, companies that started kind of to making them as small as possible. And then really the, the key kind of revolution really was when GE, I guess, uh, with their V-Scan technology showed that it's possible to have a pocket size ultrasound device. And that completely changed the way people thought about ultrasound. So the technology was getting to a maturity level that was allowing one to have now a device that was potentially going to replace stethoscopes. Interestingly, stethoscopes were invented 200 years before that. And uh, really the technology stayed the same till that moment in time. And then with kind of Apple showing kind of iPhone and showing how you can, I guess, miniaturize computation technology in a small uh, footprint. These two kind of timings kind of, uh, I guess, coincided in time to suddenly create an explosion in the point of care ultrasound devices that now we see today from many different manufacturers that basically physicians use them like a very advanced stethoscope. I think the the challenge that this technology introduced was that before this moment in history, I guess imaging, specifically ultrasound, MRI, CT, was dedicated to kind of key departments in the hospital that were populated really with experts who had years of training in image acquisition. They knew they had great hand coordination. They knew the anatomy. They knew diseases, and they kind of the pre-assumption was that whoever using an ultrasound device is able to acquire very high-quality ultrasound data, after which a diagnostic report is generated. And point-of-care ultrasound broke that in a, in a sense that now that ultrasound devices were could be purchased, you know, and placed in a pocket, 
and like a stethoscope be carried around the hospital, now anybody with very little, I guess, training could start using these devices. And that created a dilemma, I guess, within the healthcare setting in a way that should these devices be used by, by less experienced, I guess, users. And, and in fact, when we interviewed a broad group of users uh, back in two, 2016 um, from across North America, that was a key challenge. You know, people were uh, using these devices, but after hours or they were on shift at nighttime and they didn't know exactly how to uh, kind of interpret an image or acquire an image. And they had to call a friend to come over from another part of the so some or call somebody on FaceTime or, you know, basically that created kind of this challenge to actually uh, enable uh, the physicians kind of get high quality data. And that was kind of where also our kind of a timing coincided with this in a sense to be able to use the AI technology to improve the acquisition uh, of, of the data. The amazing thing, I guess, with, the, with this technology is that now, instead of having concentrated healthcare, you can have these devices now in the community, like a swarm of, uh, uh, you can think about drones, you know, distributed all over, uh, all over the world who are collecting data from a broad group. And also it flipped I guess the discussion on healthcare in what we call now democratization of healthcare, where accessibility uh, to imaging technology that is life-saving now can be uh, done at a very low cost. And that really was, I guess, the key shift in kind of the, I guess, mindset of healthcare delivery system on how to use these devices for, I guess, improving patient care. But as I mentioned, it has its own challenges. So that's really a great summary of the ultrasound. I mean, the the thing that you mentioned, for, uh, like sort of this pocket ultrasound is somewhat of going to replace stethoscope with sort of more advanced information. That That's really amazing. In terms of like AI technology to help out the ultrasound acquisition, I remember some uh, uh, seasons ago, Ilkar was here uh, in in the in the podcast, and he was talking about his startup that he started with his brother about making some of this available for the uh, really global audience, where uh, often unskilled healthcare workers are really uh, getting all this data in. But of course, what you also mentioned is very interesting because you are talking about the problem that the image quality depends on the acquisition expertise. And that in turn depends on the diagnostic quality. Now, if we are really thinking of for a second, like something like you mentioned MRI or CT, which is rather, how to say, very streamlined, done in a very controlled environment, very expert uh, radiographers who are taking those images and still we see for example when we are putting these together into uh, uh, deep learning methods data-driven methods these have trouble when there are these domain shifts so so uh, I guess that's a much bigger problem when you are talking about ultrasound uh, data sets and how you can develop our deep learning methods for ultrasound so can you give us some insights of what these major problems are when you are dealing with this problem? Yeah, I mean, as 
as we all know, I mean, the today's AI technology is very sensitive, as you mentioned, to domain shift. Slight changes in uh, in data distribution, presence of disease that didn't appear in the training data, and a slight even changes in even the acquisition settings or uh, pulse sequences, uh, for example, in MRI. They they can throw throw out kind of the the performance, I guess, of a, a trained AI model. That is really the key challenge in in I guess the certification of the AI technology today by FDA and other regulatory bodies. I guess how can you guarantee that when the AI model is used in a certain environment, the data distribution stays the same? And that means that you have to enforce certain constraints. For example, that you use a specific imaging device from a specific manufacturer, or you keep certain, uh, I guess, quality assurance in data acquisition. But the nice thing about it is that looking at the evidence today, uh, in fact, there was a paper came out a few days ago from the team that built the, the Cosmos ultrasound device, uh, they ran a randomized uh, trial, uh, I guess, with data at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And they showed that if you control, I guess, the, 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 the data quality, kind of you only look at the high quality data that are obtained by experts, AI, the variability of, of the result of the AI versus a human operator is less than the variability of the operators themselves. And, and I think this is a very key message actually in some way, because what this shows is that in a perfect kind of environment where you can guarantee high quality data, current AI algorithms are operating to some extent slightly better than the variability of the human operators who operate under the guidelines, I guess the clinical guidelines. So it's great, great, I guess, promise for, for AI. The challenge, I guess, is now taking this AI to the wild. And by wild, specifically in point of care ultrasound, is suddenly now you can't guarantee the good high quality data. Uh, the user is not guaranteed to be an expert. You have a broad set of point of care ultrasound devices from different manufacturers that you're using. And then how would you then provide that guarantee? And I don't think we are there yet. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of, I guess, steps in deep learning technology between now and then that we need to get go through to, to provide such guarantee. And many of those uh, include innovations that are, we as a community have to provide in terms of robustness to, to distribution shift automatic identification of auto distribution data uh, and potentially also uh, explainability research. And on top of it, ensuring that the models are not biased, they're fair, you know, they're not trained by a certain population and then deployed in another population. I mean, the population of Vancouver and Boston are completely different from each other. And there is no one size fits all solution. The problem I think comes as a community where I guess the objectives of, of, of the AI development community as a whole, which is kind of the NORIP CVPR domain who are using toy data to a major extent, kind of MNIST, CIFAR, 
and show very small incremental improvements, uh, sometimes even in sub-decimal accuracy improvements, are to some extent a bit different than the objectives of the medical community who use these technologies. And that's kind of where, I guess, the, the next generation, I guess, of our students need to be able to calibrate themselves in terms of the, to some extent, conflict between the two sides, I guess, uh, of the community to be able to use really amazing technologies that are coming from the AI community and deployed in the biomedical engineering concept. Yeah, that's really a wonderful summary of the many different problems you face in terms of the acquisition, that uh, the devices are different, the operator skill levels are different, and then how you are doing analysis on this data. I guess one sort of problem you you sort of talked about is probably also the fact that the annotation quality depends a lot from different cohorts and who is doing the annotation and all these make, uh, I would say, like, I guess you mentioned AI in the wild for point of ultrasound, a really, really uh, difficult challenge. Yeah. So I guess one of the thing that you are currently working on and that's something that I guess I, I scrolled through and listened to a couple of your uh, keynotes to, and that is really amazing, is the, about this uh, particular network that you are developing across uh, the entire British Columbia uh, to support telehealth with point-of-care ultrasound. So can you tell us, uh, of course, the success stories, but also the challenges, both at the technical and maybe the, the real implementation level that you had to go through for the last few years? So thank you for asking this. Uh, this is actually a very kind of a personal journey. I, I kind of consider this because as a biomedical engineer, it was kind of really for the first time that I was, I built some technology in partnership with a number of stakeholders that I can directly see is impacting my community at a very large scale. Kind of the story of this goes back to, I guess, as I mentioned, the post uh, kind of 2016, when I came back from my sabbatical and these uh, AI technologies were becoming more mature from our lab. And uh, we were pitching this to different uh, user uh, users in town and uh, the federal government decided coincidentally at the same time to invest in what they call some core superclusters in Canada. These superclusters are kind of each of them are focused on different verticals of industry in Canada. And the one that came to British Columbia was on Canada Digital Technology Supercluster. So the idea was kind of there is abundance of now data and how could we commercialize, I guess, some of the key technologies. And one of the pillars of, of this supercluster in BC was healthcare data. Interestingly, at the same time, um, uh, uh, a hospital in town, uh, uh, the St. Paul's Hospital, uh, had hired a new CEO and they were raising funds and planning to move the hospital from downtown Vancouver to outside the downtown Vancouver. And they were also looking at technologies that could showcase, I guess, the, the capabilities, I guess, of the team uh, within the hospital. And these two timings, along with kind of Everybody kind of had now heard about our, our, our innovations in, in ultrasound imaging. 
kind of came together at the right time in 2019, where led by uh, a point of care ultrasound, uh, I guess, uh, educator and user, Professor Oren Frankel uh, uh, from uh, St. Paul's and Providence Healthcare. We brought together a team, a few companies, Clarius, Mobile Health, and uh, McKesson, uh, or Change Healthcare, and uh, the community users, uh, the Rural Coordination Center uh, of BC, and the University of British Columbia to put together a partnership to give a pitch to the supercluster on what can be done with point of care ultrasound devices if they are enabled by the AI technology for high quality data acquisition in the hands of the users who have very little training. And that pitch that we gave as a group got funded, uh, I think by, uh, for about $2 million in 2019 with a launch kind of start time of January 2020 uh, to build this network. And then COVID happened. And uh, suddenly there was this huge need of long imaging. And uh, uh, there were many tests, obviously, around. And we kind of uh, answered a call by the supercluster to develop technologies that could enable long imaging. And uh, our, sub, our our group was very well positioned uh, kind of at the time to attract additional funding and start building some of the AI technologies around for long imaging. The key thing about, I guess, the team kind of that I mentioned really was that everybody was very well dedicated to the core principles of this project and everybody was very engaged. But at the time when we started the project in January 2020, the concept of deploying an imaging device across the five health authorities in British Columbia who normally didn't share data or didn't communicate with each other was to some extent a foreign concept, you know, and it needed a lot of layers of, I guess, uh, approval from different people within the healthcare system. And then COVID changed this whole thing. Uh, COVID kind of almost pushed everybody to be very collaborative. A lot of kind of the, uh, uh, I guess, inertia in the system, I guess, disappeared. And then everybody was really well focused on how to make these data sharing agreement happen as soon as possible because nobody basically wanted to waste time. And that kind of I guess, event, along with, I guess, the, the the amazing team that I worked with across these different partners, kind of put together the a, a project that was a very, very fast-paced, I guess, project in core technology from a lab to the manufacturer to uh, kind of integrate the technology in their device and then to, to the users from the community to kind of evaluate those technologies in clinical settings with their patients. And I think, I guess to some extent, again, a, a lot of, to some extent, coincidental events, but at the same time, a fairly long, I guess, a history of team building that kind of led to really the success of this project. Today, I'm happy to say, you know, we are covering thousands of kilometers of our province with about 100 uh, point-of-care ultrasound devices that are all connected to a secure cloud system 
and then data are available to the the, the partners um, uh, in uh, of the project in in Vancouver, and uh, it's an amazing resource for point of care ultrasound AI technology. And in, interestingly, this the success of this project actually led to uh, a code that was uh, made in the federal government budget in back in uh, last spring in 2021. And uh, also a lot of kind of uh, community feedback uh, in some way from the users that now we can see how much impact it has had on, on, on children, pregnant women, people who had COVID, you know, people who have heart disease. It's uh, kind of people can I now identify kind of disease, uh, let's say heart disease at the very earliest stage sometimes fly people to Vancouver for emergency cases. And this has really kind of, to some extent, shown what can be possible with a, kind of a network of these point-of-care devices. And uh, as a biomedical engineer, really, I could not have asked for a better reward. Yeah, that's really an amazing success story, right? Of, of success stories that goes around one of the f- thing that at least I also believe in like you is that the major... Uh, success of all these deep learning uh, data-driven technology lies in the fact that at some point we will have a massive scale-up in access to care. It's never about how it used to be portrayed in the media that it's doctors versus these radiologists versus AI. It was never that. It's simply coming from a background of Iran, like me from India, we know how many people are not getting access to basic healthcare. So bringing this kind of a technology and showing that, okay, it's successful to cover like thousands of kilometers, give us sort of that, how, uh, how to say the promise that the hope that someday it can also be translated across borders and can help a massive number of people. So I guess, it was really uh, uh, exciting to see that also probably like that, like you were basically ready with most of the core technology that you built before, but sort of the entire pandemic did one thing. It sort of accelerated this digital health development to a totally unprecedented level. So going through this entire exercise, what was the one most surprising thing that you basically came across that you didn't anticipate before when you were uh, writing the proposal and getting the grants, etc. I think for me, I mean, a key moment really was to realize how with very little help from technology, you can impact a huge group of people you're not talking about sending a rocket to the moon or anything, you know? Even some concepts that were, I guess, originated from what can be done with data using AI really created a network that kind of is accessible. And just being able to use a more advanced stethoscope in a First Nations community was such a big difference. You know, one of the interesting testimonials was a mother decided to keep their uh, pregnancy when they managed to see their fetus using an ultrasound. And this kind of a, it it doesn't, you know, uh, need AI or anything. 
else, you know, but just the fact that the kind of the, the mission of AI deployment provided access of such a technology in the community actually kind of changed the way that the technology interacts with, with our community. And now that I can, I mean, the hospital foundations are now using the success story to raise a lot of additional funding to accelerate the next generation of this technology development. And uh, 32,000 patients today have benefited from this technology. It just shows, you know, a very little investment, I know, of a few million dollars can impact thousands of people. What if, you know, you take it to a billion, you know? And and I think that to some extent, it also, I guess, impacts the potential value base, I guess, look at what technology can do and what investments can do to impact our community. I have been uh, telling my kids that, you know, someday if you travel a few thousand uh, kilometers away from Vancouver and, you know, you broke your, you break your leg, maybe, you know, the same technology that we developed will be used by a doctor, you know, there to actually look at your, your fracture. And, and uh, that kind of is a, to some extent, I would say, a huge satisfaction, I guess, that it gives you again as a, as an engineer. Yeah, that's really a great story, right? When you built something which was a technology project, and then suddenly it it crossed that threshold, and now the community is benefiting from it. I guess all of us started doing all the research that we do with that as a hope, and you are basically uh, going through that success. That's really amazing. So I guess you have seen, let's say, a long time of dormancy at that then point of culture care ultrasound became really successful and now combining that with the telehealth network, the AI, the actual acquisition, we are seeing this initial success, right? So what do you envision in the next five years? Where is this entire uh, framework is really heading? So I think actually FDA said that very nicely last October when they released their new guidelines on the use of the AI in healthcare. They called it AI human team. And I think this is a very key phrase that I think a lot of our students and colleagues have to think about when they are developing AI technology. A lot of the work in our Mikai community has been, how can I replace the doctor doing X or Y or Z using AI? And that's not the right way of looking at the problem. First of all, by looking at the problem this way, you are giving a wrong message to your user base that, oh, I'm going to replace you. That's not, that should not be the case. This is all about, I guess in major centers, it's all about efficiency and quality assurance. And beyond major centers, it's all about accessibility and distributed care. And really when the community thinks about the technology development within that context, then that kind of to some extent determines the requirements of the AI technology that we are developing. So if you're thinking about it as a team, then you really don't need to certify the AI to be equivalent to the expert. AI should only provide you with um, information at the right time that can help the physician make I guess the right decision for the outcome of that patient by providing some additional information. This is very similar to our cars having backup cameras, parking sensors, 
and and many of us now, I mean, including myself, cannot park our cars without these, you know, basic technologies. And and even that very simple set of sensors that are integrated in a car have changed the behavior, I guess, of the drivers. You know, they don't need to now know the length of the car and how to kind of maneuver the car to park. So very similarly, I mean, we have to, as a, as a group, figure out where do I introduce what type of AI technology that could make a difference. And that doesn't mean you need to automate the entire surgical procedure or you need to automate the entire interpretation. As long as you contribute, I guess, in the right moment, uh, at the right time, with the right piece of information, that's really the key. And I think to some extent that means a, a shift in the way that the community evaluates uh, the the AI technology shifting to some extent away from just focusing on dice and host of distance <laughs> to something much bigger. Yeah, that's really a wonderful summary. I guess probably part of the uh, problem was just what you mentioned, that it's much easier to design experiment and compare in terms of dice accuracy rather than saying, okay, I need to design an experiment where human in the AI loop and see how much it impacts in the overall patient outcome. So of course, but at the same time, that's exactly the uh, thing that matters, right? It doesn't matter how like 0.3 improvement in dice accuracy if, if it's not really helping in the patient outcome. So I guess on the on that note, probably the overwhelming uh, message that uh, all our listeners got from you is that you have to be passionate about the big picture and how the technology can help there rather than focusing only on your technology and build and write papers in your Mikai because however good that might be, it might not really lead to uh, impact to a bigger society. So on that note, Thank you really so much, Purang, for your time. It was really wonderful talking to you. I learned so much about the great success stories of that that's finally coming out of the AI hype in, in the healthcare. So really doing amazing work. And I, I wish you all the best in, in the future. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me today.